in the Reading Corner today, we've got a real treat lined up for you. We're going to be talking to teacher and author Jeffrey Boache about his latest book, Musical Truth. It's a musical history of modern Black Britain, and he's chosen 28 musical tracks uh, to take us through that history. I'd like to welcome you, first of all, Jeffrey. Hello. Hello. Really, really good to be on. I wonder if you could tell our listeners something about yourself and how you came to write this particular book. Yeah, basically, um, I was born in London. I was born in Brixton. 1982 is my vintage. So that means that I came of age in a community that was one of the UK's kind of premier black British communities, the quote unquote Windrush generation. A lot of those West Indian migrants ended up in places like Brixton, um, Notting Hill, if you go to other parts of London. So I grew up surrounded by West Indian culture. My heritage is Ghanaian. And in the 70s, a lot of West Africans came over to the UK for basically for economic purposes. Um, but it's kind of like post-colonial too, because Ghana was part of the British Empire, first African country to gain independence in 1957. So there was always a sense of being at home, being away from home. You know, my parents have English as a second language. I was born first generation son of migrants. So that meant that for me, it was the familiar and the unfamiliar. I grew up in a country that was home because it's all I knew, surrounded by people who were making it a home while at the same time being marginalised. And I think that, that that kind of sets the foundation for my whole story because I grew up having to navigate that. What does it mean to be British and to be Black and to be Black and British and to be Ghanaian and a Londoner and all, and all the other identities swirling around? So basically, long story short, school, college, uni, went into teaching, which is always going to happen because... I'm kind of restless and so I've got that kind of energy um, and I like working with young people. And then along the way, my interactions with society have just been prodding away, at kind of trying to make sense of it. So what what does it mean to be black and British? And it's no accident that a lot of my writing circles around that, um, that kind of core theme. At the same time, popular culture is a massive part of it. So music, particularly music, growing up in somewhere like Brixton is going to be a huge part of my of my narrative because I'm surrounded by reggae. I'm surrounded by soul, R&B from America. Hip hop was a huge thing in the 80s. Um, So that might help explain how we've landed here, where I've written a book of modern black history through a musical lens. Fantastic. So um, I want to ask you um, how you go about making a selection of just 28 songs. And also why you decided to start where you started, because actually you could have gone back earlier. Absolutely. Um, It's a really good question because there's been a black presence in Britain um, for as long as there have been coins with important people's faces on them. I mean, it goes back centuries, but oftentimes because the numbers are still relatively small, we're talking about 3% of the population, people forget that blackness, you know, that that construct has been part of the British narrative from way before the 20th century. But that said, there's something about post-Second World War um, and Britain's narrative as a colonial power, which I feel isn't actually discussed because there are elements of that story that are basically unpalatable, right? And when things are unpalatable, you either shy away from them or you try to hide them. And that's kind of happened in modern education. We don't really talk about the empire in a holistic sense. The echoes of it 
the jingoism and so on, you know, that's that's always put in our faces the flags and things to be proud of. But the realities of what it's done to the world at large have kind of been sidelined and marginalized, which I talk about in the in the book. But I wanted to start with the point where the empire was starting to really challenge itself and be challenged as to what it is and what it means. How do you go from controlling huge swathes of the world to having to move into a new modern, more enlightened perspective of you're living with other countries that have their own sense of identity and their own right to be empowered. How do you make that transition just when there are big chunks of people moving around the planet at the same time? And after the Second World War, that was really happening. So in terms of this country, um, Windrush marks a moment Mm -hmm. that's worth kind of recognising as a bit of a coastal shelf where communities are starting to grow. And it's specifically here West Indian communities, um, specifically looking at the islands of, you know, Jamaica, Trinidad, um, Mm. from which we started to see the Black British diaspora start to really grow and germinate. And then it starts to fold in lots of other Black cultures, Black countries, Black identities, um, which is when my personal biography comes into it. So that's why Mm. I started where I started. So I want to get into a little bit more about your choices and um, perhaps ask you to maybe from the early choices to select one that you consider to be particularly significant to, to mm-hmm. tell us about. There's one which I kind of discovered in my research in the book, which was No Carnival in Britain by someone called Mighty Terror. Now, a lot of listeners will have heard the Lord Kitchener track, which kind of opens the book. London is the place for me because it's that moment of someone, I think, actually literally coming off the Windrush. And the camera in their face and singing this Calypso track, London is a place for me. And it's full of this hope, optimism, a sense of returning to the motherland, because that's what you were taught if you were in the Caribbean. And not knowing at all that you're going to be faced with hostility, discrimination, open racism, structural racism that would leave you, you know, economically impoverished. And that's the sad, dramatic irony that we can look back and know that it wasn't going to be easy. And London might not have been the place for these communities. No Carnival in Britain is interesting because it's only a few years later. It's 1954. So we're talking six years after the Lord Kitchener track. And it's, again, it's a Calypso track, but it hasn't got that, I don't want to say naivety because that sounds like a negative and I'm not being pejorative, but it hasn't got that innocence. The title tells you straight away, no Carnival in Britain. It's like you come to this country and there's no Carnival here. The sun is not here. People are not dancing. These communities that are full of joy and exuberance that's somehow been lost and it's in a very short space of time and that song talks about that so it's a very early instance of a song which is doing those three things that music does so beautifully it's celebrating something because it's a calypso track so it's a celebration of calypso and where calypso comes from it's also interrogating asking questions of society like why is this place not right for us and it's also in a way protesting and I think that's a really key thread throughout mm-hmm. the whole book. There's something about music, usually linked to youth, usually linked to counterculture, which has protest at, at its core. So that's a song by Mighty Terror, which I feel is a quiet example of how these early interactions with Britain were starting to raise some questions. Mm-hmm. Because shortly after that track, you get into the Notting Hill Carnival, which began as a Notting Hill Fair, which was a direct response to the lack of cultural empowerment that those communities felt over in Notting Hill. 
you know. So that was a, a real point of learning for me in terms of how a community starts to grow as a non-dominant other and how you can see that played out in cultural artefacts like songs. Take us on to your next piece that you would select. I'm going to go forward a little bit to 1979, uh, to Sonny's Letter by Linton Kwesi Johnson. Because first of all, Linton Kwesi Johnson is a poet mm. and he, he said himself that he saw it as his duty to be providing a poetic soundtrack to what was happening in society around him. Sonny's Letter started as a poem and then it got turned into a recorded song. And what is so powerful about this is that it educates you through a story, through a narrative as to what was going on in the 1970s for Black communities in England. And it's a tragedy. And the reason why it's important is because a book like Musical Truth, there's so much celebration because it's music. You look through that list and you can find your own jumping off point. You can get all the nostalgia and you can enjoy the music on that level that it's supposed to be enjoyed. But at the same time, these are the most stark, tragic tales. In Sonny's letter, two brothers are accosted by the police for no reason. One of them gets physically hurt by the police and the other brother defends his younger brother and ends up going to prison because he injures a policeman and the policeman dies. That is a tragedy. But the whole point there is that in the 1970s, there were tragedies happening daily on the streets of England, whereby young black men were being turned into an archetype. They were being demonised as muggers, and therefore they were subject to police scrutiny that goes well above and beyond anything you'd call reasonable. And that meant that how do you get on in society if you're being demonised by the structures that are supposed to protect you? How do you even navigate that emotionally, let alone societally? And the legacy of that has played out because to this day, young people in this country, if you're black, you're nine times more likely to be arrested by the police than if you're white. And these are very stark truths. So Sonny's Letter was an early example of a song that was highlighting these unpalatable truths. So it's interesting. We're talking here now about an era around the time when you were born and around the time that I was a teenager. Mm. So um, the kind of music that I was listening to at that time, reggae was reggae was huge. We would have had, I think Eddie Grant actually is in your book. Um, yeah, definitely. With Electric Avenue. Tell us about Eddie Grant. He's a true legend. There's a lot of legends in this book, but Eddie Grant is definitely a true like musical legend in general. Just his contribution to music, the number of bands he was part of, the the songs that he released and kind of, and that were re-released and you wouldn't know it was him that wrote it in the first place. But Electric Avenue was, um, for a few reasons, it, it had to go in. First of all, it references a part of the world that I grew up in because it's an actual street in Brixton. One of the first streets in the UK, I want to say, that had electricity, I think. And so there's an immediacy just in terms of where he's talking about, which is important because these uprisings, they happen in particular places across the country. And the sparks were often in places of a high concentration of Black people. So Brixton, it's no accident because when tensions got that high, when people felt they weren't being listened to and the police came in heavy handed and the government wasn't listening to them, it was obviously going to turn into some kind of awkward conversation. Let's put it like that. So Electric Avenue speaks to that. It talks about the tensions that were in the air. And what I love is that 
he does that lyrically, you know, he's, he talks about out on the streets, you know, there is violence and he does it sonically as well. The voice is strained. The music is kind of crunchy and electric. It's got these kind of guitar riffs and it's a bit kind of angry and definitely leaning forward, but it doesn't offer the easy answers either. And I love that because too often adults feel as though we're supposed to have all the answers. And I feel that as an educator, I feel as though teachers, there's an implicit responsibility to know what is and what isn't and to instruct according to those predefined lines. But we're just all babies. like So we don't have the answers. So going back to Eddie Grant, there's something about his song, which is an expression of all of those conflicts and confusions and tensions. And I think that's the beauty of music. That's right. And also a lyric. Um, is it going to take it higher? Is that? Yeah, yeah. yes. I mean, that yeah. can mean different oh. things. I mean, does it mean we're going to have to, you know, escalate yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. Or does it yeah. mean we're going to rise above it? I mean, exactly. what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, I love and I love the ambiguity of true poetry where it means all of those things and none of those things. I think we're going to have to leap forward a little yeah, bit. Yeah, come on. So are we into the 90s-ish? There's a moment in the book where I turn off the music, 1993, and that's obviously because of Stephen Lawrence, which I return to in a lot of my writing because personally it was such a watershed moment for understanding race relations in this country. I was only 11 and I kind of realised, looking at what was happening in the news, that there were major problems that were to do with race and the idea that someone who had the same colour skin as me could be murdered because of the colour of his skin. And then that wasn't immediately sorted out. As a child, it kind of woke me up to what I was really living through. So the 90s are an interesting moment because for this country's narrative, that's when you have to look in the mirror and have to go forward. And it took too long. In fact, we still haven't reached resolution on that. And I talk about this in this book about music because that was a time when black youth identity was starting to flourish. Stephen represents the maturation of the first generation black British youth who should have become the teachers, the head teachers, the lawyers, the architects, the surgeons, the media professionals who have a non-dominant perspective. And he fully represents that. And his death is a tragedy. And it's a metaphor for the wider tragedy surrounding how all of that potential has just been lost and cut off due to his historic racism that can turn so ugly that it can turn into a racialized murder. And what's interesting about the songs around the 90s is that just around that time, you've got soul to soul, back to life, back to reality. Do you know how cool that song is? I remember being a kid and I was seeing people that weren't my parents' age with a confidence about being black and British that I'd never seen before. They had, they were wearing Afrocentric clothing. They, their music was reggae and soul and R&B and hip hop all fused in one. It didn't sound like Lord Kitchener or Eddie Grant. It sounded like something new. So the 90s was this moment of huge cultural potential and it laid a foundation for the next generation of youth culture. And then bang, Stephen Lawrence happens. So in terms of the 90s, there was an ambivalence there that I tackle head on because there's a celebration, but then there's this kind of like scratched record needle moment of, well, actually, hold on. 
there's still a lot more work to do here. We haven't talked much about women yet. No. We should. Yeah, we should. Because, you know, like every other aspect of society, popular music as an industry is 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 completely part of a patriarchy and hampered with sexism and discrimination against women. So the female artists are really important. One of the first is one of probably one of the most important, Winifred Atwell, 1954. Mm. Let's have another party. Like I obviously that predates me. And in terms of music, it's not the kind of music that's on my iPod, right? But I know the lineage of these kind of musical styles. And she's a piano player. What's amazing is that she was so successful being a piano player. She was having private concerts with the Queen. Her hands were insured and she couldn't do the washing up, which amazes me. So winner for that was hugely important. And the legacy of not in an archetypal kind of stereotypical strong Black woman, like having to bear the brunt of the world's ills, but different kinds of strength you know I've got Sade in here Sade Mm. is one of the most enigmatic artists of the 20th century she's almost iconic just in her in her face in her quiet spirit but there's a power to to her which is very understated it's a reason why she sells millions and the reason and there's a reason why she's she's so relevant and the song I chose for her wasn't one of her big hits Mm. it was from her album Lovers Rock which is called Immigrant and it talks about the experiences of her father and she very quietly says very hard-hitting things and I like that about the female artists in the playlist that because of the patriarchy because of sexism they haven't got the stage you know Moni Love 1990 she was doing hip-hop and there were not many people doing hip-hop period in 1990 let alone British young black British women so she represents something important um, skin from Skunk and Nancy. She was confounding our stereotypes about black femininity. She was an androgynous, gay, shaven headed, rocking out front person to a protest punk rock band that was doing massive numbers in the charts. That blew me away when I was at school because I'd never seen anyone like her. Can we also talk about the kind of artist like uh, Miss Dynamite, who is really critical of some of the practices within her own culture as well. Yeah, that's why I thought that song, It Takes More, was important because she's very much a child of modern Black Britain, just in terms of her chronology. So she grew up in an urban British environment, Black culture, her music represents that. But I think that I'm I'm kind of drawn to, to the older sister archetype because I've got two older sisters. So when I look at the world, I'm very, very willing and keen to see women as the leaders because mm-hmm. that's how I grew up. So Miss Dynamite represents that because she asks these questions about society. Like, why are you wearing that? How can you treat that person like that when you're doing this? Where do those diamonds come from? Who thought about that? So I kind of listened to her as a younger sibling, almost taking her lead as to looking at society and questioning it. You know, yeah. Leap forward Almost to the end. What have you it's got late. for us there? By the time you get to the end, so you kind of get through uh, the early 21st century stuff surrounding grime, this kind of reaction to a kind of post-Blairite society. And and that is a moment in itself, early 21st century. And POW is a song that I landed on there because it's just unfiltered aggression. It's not it's not a political song in content, but the, what it represents is political and grime as a subculture 
is very much a reaction to a society that was viewing youth with mistrust and also just leaving them to it to the point where they had to make it from nothing. And it really did come from nowhere. And it's called Grime, which is not a name that these artists gave to themselves. That's an insult. Like You don't want to be called Grime, do you? That's just like filth, isn't it? But they turned all of this into gold. And Pow is this song that was so incendiary, it was banned from clubs, that people thought it would break out into fights. So you you might have to play it in a club. And when there were protests against this scrapping of the EMAs and things like that, and the tuition fees rising, that's the song that was on loop at protests. But as you go forward, the post-grime moment is really interesting because now we're talking about, this is like Generation Z or whatever. You know, these are people like Stormzy and... Mm. Dave and Little Sims, and they've got a, a whole new confidence. They're not just angry. They're not just kicking back. They're not just screaming, but they are confident and assured about their narratives, what they want to say. And you can hear it in the music. The music is, it's actually literally quieter as well. Like, you know, if you listen to Black and Ready or Black by Dave, it's piano, it's quiet, it's, it's, it's a slower pace than 140 BPMs of grime. So we've got a generation now who are not centred in the mainstream, but they're centred in themselves. They're not looking for the cosign. I find that incredibly exciting because now you've got someone like Dave, who is like 22 or something, and he's writing essays about the government's current position on migration, on Black British culture through music. I want to come to Dave in a moment, but mm. before we do that, I've got an important question for you that oh. you actually include. It surprised me a little bit, but you included Ed Sheeran. Well, the point about Ed Sheeran was the elephant in the room, right, is that black culture is central to youth culture. And because it's a commercial commodity, it's central to society. Black music has been a commodity and it's led cultural movements go back to rock and roll jazz, hip-hop, reggae. Ed Sheeran makes black music. That's a fact. He came up very specifically with grime artists and doing black music. He's been nominated for MOBO Awards. I think he's won one, Music of Black Origin. Shape of You is a massive hit song, and it's a dancehall song. It's a very watered-down dancehall song, but it is dancehall. So what we need to think about here is, to what extent is the success of a song like Shape of You recognising where that success comes from. And that's my provocation. That's the only Mm. reason I put it into the playlist. I think Ed Sheeran deliberately does that. He makes songs that satisfy certain genres. So he'll have an Afrobeat song, he'll have an Irish song, he'll have a dancehall song. But if people don't understand that it's a dancehall song that's got a direct link to Jamaican culture, then are people understanding, respecting, acknowledging Jamaican culture. Mm -hmm. So I just raise that as a provocation to my readership and to make them understand that there's a blackness in the blind spot of the white mainstream in this country that allows you to think that blackness is still other as opposed to intrinsic and inherent and part of. Yeah. Let's come on to some music that's just being released in the last yeah. year you might not want to talk about dave but i think three rivers it's amazing look like think about the very simple fact that there are key narratives key stories to understanding us as a species if you don't know them you can't fully get who we are where we're at 
where we're going, right? I think that is a fundamental starting point for any conversation uh, surrounding the curriculum. If you don't understand the slavery narrative, you can't understand Black America. You can't understand America's impact on the whole world. If you don't understand what happened with the British Empire and the colonies and so on. You can't understand where we are. And Dave, in his album, which was released like recently, like yesterday or whatever, he's got this track, Three Rivers, where he offers a jumping off point into three really important narratives. The Windrush narrative, what happened in the 90s in Eastern Europe, because we've had a moment here where there's been an influx from Eastern European countries into the UK. And part of that starts to link to Brexit and the rise of the far right and all that kind of stuff. And what's going on in the Middle East? Now, most people couldn't hold their own in a conversation on those three narratives. And that is a failing, that is an educational failing. What is the point in us knowing X, Y, and Z about certain British narratives and not knowing what happened in the past 10 years in the Middle East? How do we expect our kids to understand the world they're in? So that song is an example of how important it is just to get clued up on the grand narratives that might not be grand to the dominant majority. As humans, our stories are everything, like they're everything. So if we don't open up as many stories as possible to our kids, our kids are just blinkered. They're just wearing straitjackets. They won't be able to, to go forward. And that's and that's why the, a song like that is so important because he's a he's a pop star. He's like releasing popular music, but he's dropping knowledge about things that aren't talked about. And he's also like Miss Dynamite. You know, he's also raising questions that you have to be careful. You don't become the dictator that you're fighting yeah. against. Really, mm. I mean, just absolutely fantastic provocations, asking the right questions for curious minds to grapple with. And also for a lot of kids, these are the realities of, if not for themselves, for the people around them. And actually, I think most people are in some way not centered. There'll be something in most people's biography that is coming from another angle. So getting, opening up those stories becomes even more vital for people's sense of self-empowerment, but also sense of collective human community which I'm all about because I'm an optimist, basically, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today in the Reading Corner. It's been such a delight talking to you as well. Oh, thank thank you, you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.